Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Ferociously warm. What might that mean? How might we deal with paradox of contemporary leadership? How might we think about the story of yesterday, today and tomorrow? How might we influence and inspire and direct and motivate those around us to take the big step forward and up to build today's learning for tomorrow's world? Tracy Azard knows more about this than just about anybody else that we know. We're so honoured that this amazing speaker and author, this person who cares so deeply about the world of education and the future thriving of students and teachers and leaders and communities, and this fellow dog owner. We're, we're, we're delighted that Tracy, with Woody sitting just behind her on the couch by the fire, can join us today. I'm so excited, I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again here on Game Changers in Series 11 for Episode 8. What an extraordinary journey we have been on so far on this series, uh, uh, speaking to so many remarkable individuals. And we add to that today with the extraordinary Tracy Izzard. Before we get to our guest, Phil, did you miss Bravo when you were overseas, mate? Or actually, the question should be: the question should be, did Bravo miss you? Look, I certainly missed him every day because you know Bravo, the Wonder Dog. Who can cope in life without their own, very own Wonder Dog? What I can say is that he's sitting exactly one metre from me right now. And gentle listeners, if you hear a quiet, satisfied snoring sound as we're recording, that'll tell you the answer to Adriano's typically impertinent question. <laughs> anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our, our guest today. Tracy, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, when I sit here talking with you two on the Game Changers podcast, I actually, like, I curiously wonder around how I got here myself. You know, it blows me away that I'm part of this series. And thank you very much to kick off with for having me here with my Woody, the Wonder Dog behind me, who might not quite be as quiet as Bravo, Phil. So just let fingers crossed no one knocks on the door. No, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Look, I've had a really, I, I think it's quite an eclectic sort of journey. I started off as a really a passionate teacher. I just love teaching. I was in the primary sector. I was a performing arts leader as well. I was always doing musicals and choirs and productions with kids. I just love seeing the passion and the joy on, on students' faces when they're, they're bringing out this side of themselves they never knew they had. And then I went and did teacher release to industry program, the TRIP program 
that the Victorian government ran with, so the department rang with the Chamber of Commerce and with the union, and about 50 of us went out into middle management and senior management in industries, and we had to apply for the job, go for interviews, Mm -hmm. and I was in the automotive industry for about 18 months, and I worked when all the training Packages were start, competency standards were starting to be talked about back in late, but so it was the late 90s. And it was really interesting just to see the dynamics of systems trying, federal and state trying to work together and the dynamics of leadership. And I found that fascinating. And the whole idea of the TRIP program was for us to get leadership skills and then take them back into the schools. I went back as assistant principal and, you know, loved my time there. Then had my first child. I think I was one of the first pregnant assistant principals. It was back in the day when you had to have, your, you know, a number to get into that role. And so then that, when we went to merit selection, I was probably one of the youngest assistant principals. And I had uh, a great principal who really supported me to do job share and, and come back. But I decided to leave that because I just wanted to just um, give some stability, I think, to, to some of my thinking and also being a mum for a while and that sort of stuff. But I started being a business manager in a fine dining restaurant, as you do when you decide you're going to take a break. So I worked as just in an amazing restaurant where I learned so much of what we do in education around culture, around leadership. Is, is Casey, so are we talking about ESARTS? Uh, yeah, we are. Yeah, I mean, what an exceptional, exceptional institution that was in Melbourne. And in fact, probably at the forefront of fine dining in in this city and really broke great ground and really established an industry now that is, you know, in that space that's totally flourishing. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I just had to just jump in there because I'd love dining there. It was great. Yeah, absolutely beautiful restaurant. And, you know, the the structure and the support systems that were set up from the start Mm -hmm. by Teague and that when I came in, I was able to really bring around the the growth element of how we help our stuff grow. And and so that was really fascinating times. And for me, it was a huge learning curve. You know, I'd love eating in restaurants, but actually (laughs) helping run a restaurant was a completely different thing. So anyway, then I then I left there and just was really fascinated always with the emotional intelligence part of leadership, culture. How do we how do we bring together doing the work, but doing it in a way that people are thriving? And that set me on the journey of doing this for the last 15 and 16 years and just stepping back into that education space, but also doing it in other sectors and getting to work with just the most amazing people who blow my mind in terms of the way that they lead and and the passion around things that come into step, you know, to come into place when we actually get our culture really humming. Thank you very much for sharing that journey with us and our listeners. Uh, what, what a rich and diverse range of experiences uh, that you've just shared with us, particularly that one in, in the context of a, of a fine dining restaurant. Phil's had the great fortune on a previous series to interview Scott Pickett, you know, mm-hmm. from Estelle, from Matilda's and a whole range yes. of exceptional Chancery Lane, a whole range of exceptional restaurants here. When I was listening to their conversation, what I discovered was that each of these different professions and vocations, when people are prepared to invest in their team and invest time into the building the capacity of others, the entire organisation hums along and thrives on a scale unprecedented. And so much of the work that you do is about helping people in the education space and learning communities to step into their agency, understand their inherent worth, 
and contribute to that ecosystem in a way that is less about self and more about the other. Can you share with us a little bit about at what point in your journey, your educational journey and where you're sitting right now, did the notion of building the capacity of the other become so important to you? Yeah, that's a really great reflective question. And I think when I went into the hospitality sector, you know, I, I took with me the, you know, the personal development plan idea and the sitting down having conversations with people about where we want to go, where do we want to head for. And then when I was in the hospitality sector, you know, one of the, the very first leading edges around this, the, the most amazing person is Ala Wolf Tasker up at Lake House in Darsford in Victoria. And her building of staff capacity is and was legendary. And while I had never met her personally, I, I just, I took that and went, this is such an important thing for us to be able to develop. And I, and I really watched the interactions of the front of house staff, the front of house with the kitchen, when that worked and when it didn't, what had to be done when it didn't work and what is it that really elevated just to this seamless experience for, for diners. But I think I then reflected back to the, the privilege I'd had through the great leaders I'd had in my career. Most, you know, just I, I was really lucky with the people that I had leading me, how much that was inherent in actually what they did. And what is it that made us flow? So I think I started to pull apart patterns. Then when I started working in education and started working a lot around leadership, every time I worked with a school or worked with a leader, I would just see that when we got the we, the collective moving together and understanding each other more and creating motivation around that and connection to that purpose, the flow, we got into flow so much easier or they got into flow so much easier. So that sort of led me to going, you know, this is really, this is really a key. And it was before we had the term, you know, collective efficacy or whatever you might want to call it. It was we see each other as having value and we see that when we bring our value together, it multiplies it to the power of. I've had the great fortune, I'm talking to our listeners right now, I've had the great fortune of uh, witnessing you present recently in Queensland at a conference that we were both speaking at. And what you just shared with us about flow and fundamentally about what matters, I got to see modelled live. And I suspect that it wasn't Tracy performing, it was Tracy living her truth. And, uh, and it was a real privilege to be present in that space to, to witness that. I often write about that each person in our schools is home to a life. And in Ferocious Warmth, your, your latest book, you explore this kind of construct that I'm just talking about just then, about you presenting so much of your truth. Through the lens of remarkable educational leaders, you do that, you know, in Ferocious Warmth. Individuals that operate from this deep sense of self in the service of others you take us on this important journey through the key elements of transformational leadership, inviting the reader to explore four things, expansive, connected, courageous, and authentic character dispositions. What does authentic leadership look like in practice? I think it is connecting to that deep truth, but I think it's, it's being prepared to always be a wayfinder of yourself. And, you know, we, we talk a lot around authentic leadership is about being the real bringing the real self to the table but I think we've got to be prepared to go on a journey to understand our real self and our, our real self is one that connects with others our real self is is one that cares and has empathy for others 
And our real self is, is something that some of us through what's happening in our lives has, have put up a whole lot of shields around. And so my concept of authentic leadership is that when I am home to my truth, I know that I can sometimes work at my best and sometimes work at my very worst. And my authenticity is that I'm always wanting to peel back the layers to get to my best self and bring that so that others can experience that. But I can also experience it myself. Tracy, one of the things that I've been reflecting on while I've been listening to you and Adriano go deep into this notion of authenticity is that I've never met an outstanding leader who wasn't relentlessly dissatisfied with who their authentic selves are. It's interesting. We spend a lot of time listening and talking to people to reassure them that it's okay to be you and it's okay to turn up as you, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, as you said, when, when you peel back the layers, great leaders are never satisfied with their performance. How is it, you think, that really, really good leaders can channel that dissatisfaction and turn it into a positive rather than a negative? I think it's having an explorer's mindset, really. It's it's being curious about yourself. It's being curious about, well, what, why is it that, that I got triggered by that? One of the ferocious one leaders I talk about in, in the book, she talks about how it was really important, it is really important on her leadership journey to journal and to just make sure that she's reflecting on what happened during the day and what is it that triggered me off? And I ask some of those as in reflective pauses in the book around what do you know what your triggers are? You know, why is it that some people can come and have a conversation with us and it flows? And we bring our best self to the table. Why is it that other people just trigger me off and straight up my defences go up? Now, there's a whole lot of neuroscience behind that as well, but there's also that that gets linked to the emotional charge that we might have from that person. Now, I've seen leaders who are, are none the wiser that that even goes on for them. They, they don't take that time to reflect on the quality of that interaction compared to the quality of the other interaction. So I think that making and privileging time for really deep introspection and self-reflection is critical because then what we can do is we can be curious about what would that look like next time? So there's that forward thinking that goes on with it or what work do I need to do on myself to actually understand myself more to move to a different space? And I think if we want our teachers, we want teachers to do this, we expect teachers to do this around their pedagogy. You know, to, to deeply forensically explore what is it that's working, what is it that's not. Yeah, but, but that's so hard. That's so hard. I'm going to put something out mm. here that my art teacher colleague here will probably think is blasphemy. But <laughs> I think Ken Robinson got it wrong when he said that schools kill creativity. I don't think schools do. I think adulthood does, and I think institutions do. Mm. I think it's very difficult to retain that explorer's mindset when you've got the weight of adult responsibility and expectation and you've got that inherent desire within yourself to live a life that is committed to the service of others, which adults do, and then institutions themselves are largely about perpetuating themselves. So when you're an adult working within an institution, your job is not to explore possibility or explore what's outside the walls, but to perfect what's inside the walls and hit rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And I think that's what kills creativity. And I don't think schools are any different. 
in that respect is you've got a lot of experience in schools, but also outside schools. How do we nurture and protect that explorer's instinct when everything around us is stopping us from doing that? I still think it comes back to that individual, though, Phil, because I have a choice about being curious, even about those walls, about what's within those walls, what's within my circle of influence to be able to do something about. And I, this is why ferocious warmth for me, curiosity is so important and um, expansion, the expansive element of the ferocious warmth leader. It's a huge part of ferocious warmth leader to step into a space of I seek to question the status quo. And I think as, as institutions, we have got to be doing that. You know, so many of your series have absolutely been around that how do we tweak, how do we continue to keep on evolving, either blow things up or step-by-step step make changes. And we can't do that if we are not modelling that curiosity ourselves. And if we can start with self, I think it can be really easy to be, it, it's almost like, you know, it can be very easy to be reflective on what other people need to do. But if we can always start with what do I need to do, then we start to get shift. So whilst we absolutely need to have shift, if we had everyone at a system level stepping into this, let's let's explore what this needs to look like for our students in more rigour than we have rather than going this is the, the construct that we have and that we're living with. If we had people that had that curious mindset fostering in themselves, that ripple effect is going to continue to happen but if I don't make time for even me to, to be curious about, well, where does my school sit in all this? Or where does my classroom sit in all this? Then we're not going to get it happening anyway. I'm sitting here and I'm curious about something, Tracy, and that is uh, mm-hmm. in writing Ferocious Warmth, you interviewed lots and lots of individuals mm-hmm. to craft an exceptional book that I believe is, is a must for every uh, leader across our, our country, particularly within schools. But I'm curious about what did you learn about yourself and your own leadership in writing that book? I really learned that it's almost like the irony of our expertise, really, that a lot of the people that I hang out with, we talk about this irony of our expertise, that in in any busy life, any busy, responsible life, if we don't make the time to do that reflection, stillness, filling our own joy bubble cup, then what ends up happening is we get out of balance. And, you know, that's the premise of the book. But more and more I was able to reflect on as the as the frameworks, the structures, the, the talking to people, the concepts came, there really was this real understanding that, you know, drink your own medicine there. <laughs> and I remember listening to John Medina and at a conference who wrote, you know, Brain Rules, which is a great book. And, and he He said that, you know, when he first started looking at all the neuroscience, you know, he's got incredible background around the science of learning, that he knew that he was not as healthy as he should be. And all his research was coming around to health as being a real determinant around how our brain functions. And so he went on this journey of just getting himself healthy to basically make sure he was drinking his own medicine. And, and so for me, it has been about let, let me not let that priority of sitting, reflecting, thinking of others, like just doing that whole meditation on what's my impact and what do I want it to be on, on my immediate family, my friends and the community and society, spend time thinking about that and crafting the actions that are going to allow that to happen. Again, you, you keep bringing us back to the things that we should be doing and thinking about in our leadership. Self-care for school leaders 
is something that we do terribly. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we and, talk about it all and, the time. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. We talk about well-being all the time and we get the conversation about well-being wrong because most of the conversation about well-being is how do I stop doing things I don't like doing in my job? Like, you know, how do I stop doing guard duty and how do I do less marking and how do I do this, that, and the other? You just sit there and go, okay, well, you know, you want to do less yard duty, then you're never going to, you don't want to do yard duty, you're never going to connect with kids outside of the classroom and most important relationship connections with kids occur outside a classroom, which you then bring into a classroom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So once, once you strip away that sort of industrial conversation around mm. well-being, then we're left without ideas as to what yeah. to do and how to do it. When we talk mm. with leaders about the importance of reflection and journaling, and I think reflection is it's like debriefing in experiential education. You can't do enough of it. And yet every time we watch what people do in experiential education, they always skimp on the reflection at the end. How can we help educational leaders to change their mindsets around looking after themselves so that they can be and become their best selves to help other people do the same thing? Yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting conversation that's absolutely bubbled out of the concept of ferocious warmth is, is that when I do work with school leaders and we look at this, this you know, the idea of the concept of when we are at our best, we're, we're drawing from our head and our heart, we're dynamic, we're able to move with the context. But that when we go to our more defaults of more, just cognitive head, logical thinking or more heart-driven relationships we don't have that good blend together, then our impact lowers. In fact, when we go to extremes, it can be incredibly uh, damaging. We are what I call the fearsome leader who just, you know, just goes authoritarian, do not want to have any interaction with anyone. People hide under desks. I heard a story of this the other day of, you know, someone who when they walk through the corridor, people, if their kids are not in the classroom, they'll hide under the desk or They'll, they'll sort of phone ahead to make sure that people know that that fearsome leader's on the way. That inflicts trauma on people. When we're out of balance the other way, we create drama. When we're very head-filled, heart-filled, we can, we can move into that rescuing relationships and immature emotional relationships and put it under the heading of I'm caring for people. But actually what we're doing is we're creating these cliques, we're creating gossip areas, we're... So those two extremities that are that are sort of sit on the outside, when people understand that a lot of that comes back to when I have not been looking after myself, my emotional dysregulation is uppermost. We put together, it's something actually I, I sent in an email to Professor Michael Fallon the other day was, I just think that the well-being piece sitting on the side of leadership is wrong. Mm-hmm. And not suggesting that he's doing that. This I was just saying to him, my, my thinking around ferocious warmth is we've got to pick that up and we've got to put it in the very centre with self-care that says, if I want to be this, if I do want to bring the type of leadership that we need and I want to bring, I have to realise that self-care is not an optional extra, that it allows me to regulate my emotions, to have self-awareness and to be able to have emotional management of myself and help to create that environment for others. Okay, so let's come back to the institutional question again. Schools are institutions that were designed probably, what, 150 years ago in Australia, somewhere yeah. around the 1860s, 1870s, when the Public Education yeah. Act came in. They were fundamentally designed to be places that did child mining, now that child labour was illegal. So we've got child mining with a bit of, well, let's get kids some sort of basic education up to the age of 
12, 13, 14, and let's do it in a fashion that we can pay for. So 150 years later, the mechanics of school mm. are pretty much the same. So in other words, we take, yep. we take kids in at a yep. time that's just before their parents have to go to work. We let them go, usually with an assumption that there'll be a parent, usually a mother, who'll be at home and available for the children when they get home somewhere around about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And for the duration of the day, a teacher is fully occupied. A leader is fully occupied. The hardest thing in the world to do is to get all the people who need to be in a conversation in a school together at the same time. Just before this recording, I've been sitting with a client. They've known for six months that we're going to be on site for three days. Do you think we can actually get everybody in the same place at the same time? No, not even for an hour will that be possible because the structures, the wheels that drive the institution forward don't allow the time and space to be given for even routine disruption, let alone personalised care for teachers. How do we help institutions to think about the sorts of things that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think it's a critical piece. If you look at the schools that are managing to do this work, they are privileging time. They're, you know, the systems that are saying, let's put in supervision. No, as a as a sector, it's quite amazing that we do not have supervision built in. When we have students with such trauma coming into the classrooms and we're expecting teachers just to be able to deal with all that rather than putting in some really good supervision spaces for them. We know that in some systems they're putting that in for school leadership. But even the resourcing to be able to say, what, why is it? Yeah, why is it we have 9 to 3.30? You know, there's a number of schools that don't do that model anymore because they're shifting to try to find that really important time for teachers to come together to do the work, for leaders to come together to do the work. So I absolutely agree. The institutions, we have a huge responsibility to just keep on looking at what is it we know makes us the best educators we can be. And it's not about being exhausted. It's not about staying in the same ways we've always done it. We have got to be looking at the fact that educators, leaders who are able to be their very best are absolutely going to be making the type of education with their students that we need for the future. So I'm with you. We need to shift that. We need to have people understand that exhausted educators, exhausted leaders are not creating the environment for learning that we need. So how do we best then support their school leaders, Tracy? Because, you know, they now need to deliver a new narrative, a new narrative that will lead to a new social contract, not only for schools, but for society. Sitting here listening to both you and Phil talk, and I love how Phil used the, kind of like this industrial well-being model, you know, that, that, that's mm. often implemented and rolled out, you know. Oh, we have, mm. we have access if you're feeling a bit flat. Just give them a call. Like... I just want a human conversation with you right now, but they, and that won't happen in Salcone School because of the business and whatever. And at the moment, everything about our schools is about measuring productivity. We measure the productivity of the young people in the care. We measure the productivity of the adults and are they delivering it? And of course, the media is fixated on, on league tables and measures that it's all about productivity. It is such an industrial construct. None of it has any focus on measuring significance. And at the heart of the matter is that people matter within our learning communities. We know that. We know that well-being, wellness comes first. We know that time is fluid. Technology during the pandemic has demonstrated to us that's the case. And we also know 
that we exist because community is king in constructs of schools and the value of all those stakeholders being around the same table, contributing to raising a child yeah. and supporting that child to step into their own agency. So my question is what I just said a moment ago, how do we support then these school leaders to deliver a narrative for a new social contract for school? I do believe it is. So if we take, for example, the government sector, how often do we need to talk about compliance? Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the structures that are put in place to make all the checks and balances work. And every time I walk into a school and talk with teachers and talk with leaders, it's it's about this, this cry for them to have the time to do the emotional labour of connection uh, without this, this compliance stuff just pressing down on them. So I, I really do think we've got to have senior leaders in systems asking themselves much better questions about what the accountability measures are and how do we step into ones that are more around the significant pieces that you were talking about, Adriana. So how do we how do we create that environment to do that? I think, you know, having people talking provocatively around it like you do on, with, on this podcast and having more people shake and rattle the cage that we're all standing in has got to be part of it, doesn't it? And I think that the individual school leader can actually say, what's the rattle of my cage that I can do? How is it that that I can make sure that I'm doing the connection piece because there are people that are absolutely able to do this and create a culture that is strong and thriving. There are strong thriving schools. There are ones where those emotional relationships happen because the focus is on them and it's with the students, it's within the teams. One of the most interesting relationships I think is between the school principal and in the government system, the next senior education improvement leader, I put, you know, commas around that. That interaction between the bureaucracy and the school, often that relationship is very flawed. Often that relationship is incredibly punishing rather than partnership. So I I still will, you know, assert that if we come back to what is our role in building relationships and having those conversations, wherever our ripple is, then the ripple is going to change and we're going to be able to continue to have great places like the, you know, the new metrics project take legs and really do some things to shift the way we've always done things. Thank you. Thank you for that response and and sharing that insight with our audience. I fully agree with you. We are very fortunate that there are pockets within particularly the Australian context where there are people who are leading in this space and who are deeply committed to understanding that people matter and that we we need to start creating an ecosystem that attends to individuals in a way that, that is meaningful and honest and that everyone feels deeply valued within those contexts. Yeah. And we're seeing it happen all the time. You're also an individual that has been a champion of this in many ways because so much of your work is exactly this, you know, going into into communities and helping them see their inherent possibility by this deep tuning in first. And then you can be so much more for the other once once you've done the work, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel that's a common thread, isn't it? It's a common thread in our conversations throughout this whole series that everyone that we've spoken to so far is you've got to do the work. Got you to have do- to do the work. And further to that, part of the work is to have the courage and conviction to say no. To yeah, well-meaning so. people, I mean, if we if we go back to that previous statement you made about the compliance thing, the reason why compliance people get their way is they're good at what they do, and they're well-intentioned. They're trying to do the right thing. They're organised, 
they get themselves onto agendas and they sit there and they go, no, we've really got to do the fire extinguisher training and it's really got to be done for 75 minutes and then we've got to do the the training for an anaphylactic shock and then we've got to do this and that and the other. And before we know it, the only day that we've got to connect with each other, to establish a sense of belonging, of a shared purpose and what we're going to do about this together has been eaten up by a whole lot of stuff that required a strong leader to turn around and go, great idea, but no, we're not going to do that because something is more important and we need to do this. And you need to help us find alternative solutions to getting this other stuff done that's not going to get in the way of stuff which is more important. And then they've got the courage to turn around and say, and yes, I know this stuff is important, but we've got to fit it in to everything else and we've got to put first things first around that. Yep. That's ferocious warmth, absolutely, absolutely, and I and I really concur with with that. The you know the boundary rider, the the willingness to say no, the willingness to put the effort into connection. I think is just such a critical piece around that. I've got a buzz diagnostic, which is around, you know, learning cultures in schools, and there's been over ten thousand educators go through it, in about five hundred schools. Forty eight percent of people that have gone through it said they feel strongly connected to each other within the the school culture but that's 52 percent that see that they're not connected and in fact there's there's quite a cohort that say i don't feel connected in at all and you know that really worries me because if we do not feel connected it's very hard for us to be vulnerable with each other around our learning what we're doing in the classroom as learners and it's it it creates a lack of psychological safety for us to do that hard challenging work which we're, we're really needing to step into so much of what you're sharing with us is, is, as I said a moment ago, the work that you are actively doing in support of leaders and, and school communities right now. You have a real presence in the Australian educational kind of landscape and industry, often presenting at large conferences, not one that I went to. And of course, you are a national fellow of the Australian Council of Educational Leaders, an organisation that, that you've been a great champion of and supporter of in terms of their work and their mission. We've been talking a lot about the leader within the school mm. and their role about attending to themselves so they can be so much more for the, for the others and, and then building the capacity of others to see their inherent worth so everyone can contribute to that ecosystem. I want to take us outside of the school now. That's why I highlighted the work that you do with ACEL and so many other organisations that you continue to support and be a great champion of. You're, a great, you're an important voice in education in Australia because you inherently believe education matters and, and our evolution in that uh, also equally matters. How can we then support leaders, particularly those in our schools, to, value, to the value of going beyond their boundaries of their school community and make active and intentional contributions to the advancement of the entire system? It's such a nested question, that one, isn't it? Um, and again, if I go back to the diagnostic, I've got one of the one of the lowest responses is as a school, we actively share our practice and knowledge with other schools. And it is, I think it leads back to us being in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And so our heads are down. Our heads are going, where do I have impact? Where do I, where can I make the most? with the energy that I have and yet you look at the people that are making the difference that are going out there you know and amazing Dr Bryony Scott who you know I interviewed for Ferocious Warmth she's she's one of my exemplars around Ferocious Warmth but you know that her articles are just provocation where she's using her courage to step out and say hey I'm calling this 
she's got the positioning to absolutely do that, but she's also got the really deep thinking and experience to do it as well. And Tracy, that's why she's a, she's a guest on the special series of this podcast series on yeah, leadership. Right. She has that courage and conviction and that ability to go, yeah. no, we're not doing this. That's it. That's it. And so I think if you if you look at someone like Brian who's got that, you know, she's speaking at that national level, I would really encourage school leaders to say, who am I and what do I believe first up and foremost? You know, because I think we have to have a sense of conviction of that we have to have that knowledge of ourselves and evolving knowledge always. But what is it that we believe to be the most important things to talk about, to go after and to set up real boundaries about? Uh, where is it that my influence can go beyond my school walls? Absolutely. Networks, associations, where rather than going in, this is really important around mindset, I think, rather than going in and talking about all the stuff that's hard and wrong and we're never going yeah. to do this and it's a it's a mindset of defeatist, it's a fear of, you know, misadventure, I call it. You know, it's a fear of what if mm-hmm. we stuff this up? How do we go in with this sense of, asking provocative questions of each other to actually garner what is it that's important to us as a as a system or as a, a, a bunch of colleagues who have got voice to be able to bring together. You know, when I work with networks, we'll always talk about the fact that one of the key outcomes of a network of school leaders together should be advocacy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely should be advocacy. And so how do we make time to have a conversation around how do we turn the challenges we have into strategic objectives for us to work towards. I think you mentioned earlier on in our conversation the the word compliance, and it's interesting how many of our colleagues within schools view things that they feel that are imposed upon them as simply compliance. Now, every organisation, whether it's a school or a private business or a not-for-profit, has some degree of accountability or compliance associated to it. Mm -hmm. In our school context, of course, We have child protection compliance elements to it. That's a no-brainer. It's sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. We have a big responsibility in that space. We also have responsibilities around the integrity of our profession and maintaining the the relevant standards so that we can continue to be a a credible entity in in shaping the lives of young people and ourselves. And then, of course, there's all those necessary risk mitigations that that go on within Mm -hmm. schools. There's compliance about Mm -hmm. financial sustainability and solvency because, I mean, in the absence of that, the school shuts its doors. So all those things are important. What I'm hearing you, though, say is let's not step into the space of dress rehearsing this as the potential of the tragedy that could go with it. Let's step into the space of what's the opportunity that comes with all of these things and how we can look at it instead of it being a deficit mindset to one of a growth mindset, one that we we can pivot. And we can do that really successfully by contributing to the broader church of our, our of the system as someone like O'Brien does and so many others do as well, who actively are contributing to shifting and shaping and using their authority to really influence the change that's necessary going forward and then to call out the nonsense when it goes a little awry because uh, both have equal value. So I've got two final things to ask you before I hand over to my esteemed colleagues to wrap up this, this really deeply intriguing conversation that we've had today. My first question to you is, What's your personal sense of the future? And how do you see yourself evolving as a person and as a leader? Yeah, I, I love your questions, Adriana. I sort of walked into this <laughs> podcast this morning going, I just don't know what's going to come out of you, so hold yourself steady. It's all about the edges for me at the moment. And uh, I 
I actually went and uh, I don't know whether you know the very amazing Dr. Jason Fox, but uh, incredible motivational scientist, but incredible thinker around strategy. You would love his, his first book was called The Game Changer and The Quest is his second book. And his thinking just is always fantastic. And I went along to a association I'm part of on Monday night and he was talking with us around really exploring our edges. And it's been something that I've been thinking about with some of my squad uh, recently as well as where, where is it that you, you want to go to? What's, what's next? How do, you, how do you stay evolving? And my reflection on that is it's actually where we almost are most fearful to go. That it's where, you know, I often talk about this learning zone being uh, challenging our status quo. And I think for me, my status quo that I want to challenge is how do I make sure that I'm absolutely supporting and helping to spread the word because I've got, you know, a great platform to be able to spread the word around more and more of the great things that are going on in education that are shifting the paradigm. And how do I take that a little bit stronger into my work forward and so that's where I'm wanting to evolve to so that I can really be uh, help and holding the space for the practitioners on the ground that are doing the work to you know be able to showcase the thinking to be able to connect up the dots for people around this to be able to go into schools where I often do a lot of work in individual schools to be able to just spark their thinking about where do they want to go that's actually pushing the paradigm rather than going, this is the way we've always done it, you know? So I think there's there's more work for me to do in that space and that's really what I'm thinking about. And I am excited about the future. I think there's so many dynamic people out there using technology like this, using ways to connect up thinking, using, you know, those powwows of thinking, but really moving to, well, how do we action this? How do we push against this, this industrial structure And how do we make that structure so that we're architecting it into something that's far more usable for what we need for right now? Thank you. If you only had 280 characters to tweet Mm -hmm. a definition of leadership or leading, Mm -hmm. what would Mm -hmm. it be? So I'd have to say it's my ferocious warmth definition, I think, which is probably a cop-out, but I do really believe in it, which is I think that the world needs leaders with the ferocity to lead transformation, but with the warmth to be able to connect and inspire people to do it. Love it. Tracy, it's been just an absolute privilege to sit around the virtual fireplace with you and we today and have a yarn about what leadership is and what it might be and how we might equip leaders in schools with the type of character and the type of qualities that you exemplify and that your work advocates for. We're so glad you're able to join us today on the Game Changers podcast. We wish you very well. And we're looking forward to seeing the influence that your work and your ideas are going to have on the world of education and beyond in the years to come. Thanks so much, Phil. And thank you both so much for just creating this amazing opportunity for um, this sort of dialogue to go on and for people to be part of it. So thank you so much. Since 2020, we've been shining a light on brave pioneers, the game changers who know the way, go the way and show the way forward as we build today's learning for tomorrow's world. The Game Changers podcast is produced by the dunk man himself, Lachlan Duncan, is available on Apple Podcasts. It's available on SoundCloud. It's available on Spotify. It's available on Google Play. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, let's go.